0: Thanks, Ken. Uh, Through the past couple months, I call it actually the Valley of Mam, March, April, and May, we have tried to the best of our ability to communicate as a pastoral staff. And I am not sure there is one message that has gotten across clear to our church, and I'm going to try my best to make it clear on behalf of Pastor Trevor, Pastor Derek, Pastor Jared, Pastor Ken, and myself, we want you to know we love this church! We love it! Do you know that? Ah! (laughs) Do you know we would die for this church? (laughs) For some reason, I'm not sure that has been clearly communicated. We love this church. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. In fact, um, I told Jared early this morning, I said, I had a great sermon worked up, Psalm 17, verse 14. It was an incredible sermon. And I called him and I said, I got to change it. I really felt moved by the Spirit to change it. And I'm not saying that just to say that. So this is going to be more off the cuff. I got it all written down. But it's going to be off the cuff. And I've been thinking through the very first time we started these Videos to where we are now, a lot of stuff stuff happened in this valley of ma'am, I'm telling you. I remember the very first sermon was on Hosea. We're still in Hosea. I remember one of my first illustrations was about the COVID-19 and not really thinking it was a big deal. And then I saw this video the other day that perfectly explained what happened. It's this lady talking to her past self in the month of February while she was in the month of June. And she's sitting across from herself, and she says a lot of things. She says, do you have a hobby? And the lady before the COVID-19 says, what do you mean, do I have a hobby? Get a hobby. Um, do something you like to do at home. She goes, I, well, I can't do something at home. I'm going to, you know, we got this new job. We're going to be traveling all over the world. No, you're not going to be traveling all over the world. What do you mean? Um, but you know what? Why don't you think about getting yourself a dog? Why? Why would I need a dog? I just can't explain it to you because you're gonna, you're gonna, by the end of this, you're going to go crazy. And through this uh, man valley, a lot of stuff had hap- has happened. I remember the very beginning, my mom was calling me a lot about my sister Laura. She wasn't eating. If you know anything about her, that's not a good thing. That was early March. Then I had uh, my friend Buddy. He died in the beginning of April. He's the guy I went to Russia with. He got the COVID-19 and he died. That was a strange day. I can remember eating dinner and I heard two gunshots, but actually it was a car accident right outside down the street and a family from our church was involved in a major, massive car accident. The next week it rained like crazy in our state. Everybody's basements were flooding and one of our missionaries, you know, Bethany and BJ, their mom, they got called because if you know anything about Midland, the dams broke. And at the springs right now, they are now taking care of 200 people that are without homes and have mud in their basements. That was a terrible month. And then um, a hero, I think, of the Christian faith died, Ravi Zacharias. I mean, that guy was a stalwart since the 70s of gospel evangelism. And then in that same week, a person from her own church, Phil Potter, went to be with his Lord. And needless to say, we have been working and straining on how to best communicate and do the best for you opening this church, and that can drive you crazy. And so all of this thrown into it has has, um, brought me to a passage, but I need to get some books out. If you can, if you can open up to Romans 14, we're going to look at verses 7 through 12, and the title of this is Owned, Ruled, and Judged. Owned, Ruled, and Judged. And you'll understand why I titled it like that. It's from Romans chapter 14, 7 to 12. Owned, Ruled, and Judged talks about our Christian life, past, present, and future. So please open up to Romans 14, chapter 7, I mean chapter 14, verse 7 through 12. I'm going to be reading from the ESV every once in a while. I'll let you know when I'm doing the NLT. But ask yourself this, what does this say about me, my life in the past, my life in the present, and my life in the future? Because I'm telling you, if you get this, it will change your life. And John Rasmus, will you please turn off your phones? Oh, that's Sherry Brown. She's okay. She's been up in the spring. Let's start. Verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, We are the Lord's. For this end, Christ died and he lived again that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God so then so then as a result of everything we just read so then each of us will give an account of himself to God so the way I'm going to break this up when I say own we're going to ask the question from verse 7 and 8 who owns us verse 9 we're going to ask the question who rules us And then from verses 10 through 12, we're going to ask the question, who judges us? So the first question is, who owns me? And we find the answer in verse 7 and 8. Let me read that again. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. And this is, in a sense, about ownership. You could say it's about autonomy, or who tells me what to do, but it's more than anything. It's about ownership. Why? Because, verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. To the Lord. We are his. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. So really when, when we say who owns us, I want to ask it even like this. We're going to work through this seven and eight to answer this question. Did Jesus die to set me free like a bird so I can just go do what I want? Or did Jesus die to have me serve him as his slave, as his property, as his alone? That's a tough thing to ask because Americans don't like it. Truthfully, we don't. We are set free. Freedom is like a bird. I can do whatever I want. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm going to argue, number one, this verse, 7 and 8, argues that I am his property. I am his property. He first bought me because I was a slave to death. Psalm 49, 8 and 9 say this. I'm going to read it from the NLT. Psalm 49, 8 and 9. I love the NLT, by the way, Jared. Man. Psalm 49, 8 and 9. Redemption does not come so easily. That means being bought back out of my slavery of sin. It doesn't come so easily for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. You can talk about this is, this is used in some sense of just physical death. Nobody's going to stop physical death. But in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 1, the, the writer Peter takes this passage and talks about Jesus, however, bought us and redeemed us and purchased us out of death with his precious blood. So when he was on the cross, it was a payment for your soul. He was buying you. He's redeem, redeeming you like a pawn shop. If I go and I take my dad's watch to get my, some money at the pawn shop, but I don't have enough money to buy it back, well, my mom gives me some money so I can go redeem it, buy it back. When I sin, and because I was born in sin, I have been a slave to sin and death and eternal damnation. And Psalm says, I can't pay it back. That's the whole point of the cross. You've probably heard this a lot. Please don't ever get over it. So when Jesus spilled innocent blood... Some people like the word shed. Either way, man spilled it. He allowed it, so he shed it. He volunteered it up. It was his payment to buy me so I could be his. I'm his. I'm his. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain. For me, through him whom death pursued amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me. That's, that's the heart cry of a true Christian. So I am his property because he bought me. And secondly, not only did he buy me to, to release me from death, he bought me to use me, to be a use for him. And what is that use? To be a witness for him. I like what Philippians says. Philippians says in chapter 3, Paul says, I take hold of Jesus for the reason he took hold of me. So Jesus took hold of me for a purpose. And I want that purpose. Why did Jesus take a hold of me, Ephesians? Oh, I'm going to be a trophy of his glory. You can find that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, for the praise of his glory. I'm his trophy. He takes a dirty old bum like me, and he wants to shine me up. So when people see me, they'll say, wow. How did that happen? But Jesus took a hold of me. I'm his property, not just to save me from death, but to use me for his good and perfect will. It's amazing. What does he want from me? What does he want with me? Listen to Galatians 1:15 to 16. This is just something to consider. I think this has, in some ways, directed my life a lot. It directed Paul's life. Paul is looking back on why was he bought? Why was he redeemed? And in 15 and 16, he said, but even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. And that's a, it's, a, it's identifying what grace is, he calls it marvelous. That means it's something to marvel about. You can't, you can't comprehend the incredible worth of his grace called me by his marvelous grace, that, that it pleased him to reveal his son in me. What? To reveal his son in me. He wants to reveal Jesus in me. Do you call yourself a Christian? That word Christian means I am a little Christ. I am in his, I'm on his team. And he wants all kind of little Christians walking around. But to really be on his team, don't you have to look like him? I got a text from a good friend today. It's been a tough week. I mean, Jared, it's been a tough week. Let's be honest. And some of this text came out of some of the discussion online. People, people like to discuss things online. Some people like to be really clever online sometimes too. And uh, they saw, I, I try to be humble C.S. Lewis said, if anything bad happens, point the finger first to yourself. So I try to do that. And I'm not perfect. I'll admit that. I'll admit that. I fail in a lot of ways. I wish I would have done better for the potters. and I know they say, oh, you did fine. But you don't understand. I wish I I could communicate how great Christ is to everybody. And oh, for a thousand tongues, I just can't. Oh, for a thousand tongues and wisdom to lead this church better. And um, have you ever felt like a failure? Where everything you do fails? Oh, I I do almost every day. And I got a text from a friend. And here's what the text said. It wasn't long. I see Jesus in you. (laughs) That's enough. If this situation happened just so a glimpse of Jesus might be seen in me as I handle difficulty, that's enough. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7, 22-23, because Paul's going to answer the question, did Jesus buy me so he can set me free or serve him? 1 Corinthians 7, 22-23, you tell me. Remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you were now free in the Lord. So he's talking to people at the time they he's writing to were indentured slaves. They were debtors, so they worked for people, and some would work for seven years. They'd work on their land. They were debtors. They were slaves, actual slaves. And Paul says, if you're a slave to a man, just know you're, in your heart you're a free man with me. And then he says this. And if you were free when the Lord called you, we are Americans, so we are proud of our freedom. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. And then listen to verse 23. God paid a high price for you. So don't be enslaved by the world. In other words, stop living like the world. You're Christ's; He bought you. Stop thinking you can just be free. Do whatever you want. You're his. Question number two, who rules me? And It's found in verse 9. Verse 9 gives us the answer to this end. Christ died and lived. Some verses say rose again. So this is in the present tense. We talked about who owns me. Christ died in the past tense. Who? rules me, this is about the present tense, and that's why it says in verse 9, to this end Christ died, but he rose again. That phrase, rose again, or he's alive, means he right now is watching. Right now. I think this is where Christians don't realize what Christianity is all about is about a king that is daily watching us, who daily wants us to serve him. For this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the living and the dead. He, he, uh, he did this so he could be the Lord. And so your question, basically, if he rules me, you can break, break it down a little bit more. Here's the question I want to answer in this passage. If Jesus is presently alive, okay? So I take what Scripture tells me and I, I chew it up and I, I try to let it saturate my mind that this is reality, okay? The Bible isn't just nice stuff you put on a meme, you know, or a nice... This, this is reality, how I'm to rule my life. In verse 9 says, Jesus presently is alive. So if Jesus is presently alive, do I treat him as he is, my king? Do I treat him as if he is presently alive? What's very interesting, if you read the account, you can find this in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Resurrection accomplished two things. It proved that Jesus conquered death, that my sins are paid, the Father's satisfied. So it proved Jesus' final, finished work was accomplished. It's like a receipt on buying an item. He bought my salvation, the resurrection's my receipt. You know what, also, the resurrection was? It was the path to his coronation. So it says when he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. When he ascended into heaven, he was given a gift. They give gifts to kings. He was given a gift of the Holy Spirit and sat down and now he pours out the Holy Spirit on us. He was coronated. He sat down on the throne. He's king. Resurrection was the path to coronation. So his title Right now, he is in the office of monarch, of both the living and the dead. He's the ruler over all. We can sing nice songs, but he is the king. He's the king. What this means then is that Jesus now rules where sin once did. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to 2 Corinthians 5.15. This is a great verse cuz it's very explicit. 2 Corinthians 5:15. Are you there, Derek? Are you there? I hope so. Derek's probably making a latte. 2 Corinthians 5:15. And he died for all. Same thing that we just said, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So he's risen from the dead. Same idea as the last verse we just read. But he died so that there's really two choices. We no longer have to serve the first choice. We can now serve the second choice. first choice I'm going to call is the throne where sin resides. The throne where sin resides. Sin's work, according to verse 15, is to make us selfish, to live for themselves. How do you know when sin's at work in your life? You are selfish. I was reading this book on being a theologian of the cross, uh, Martin Luther's Heidelberg Catechism of uh, 1518. It's an incredible book. In this book, I learned something that was, they asked the question, where does sin sit in my life? And normally we think the way you can tell you're a sinner is you do bad things, like you smoke weed or you you know, you go listen to rock and roll music. And, and what this book really taught me is the greatest indication of sin manifesting itself in my life is I say this. I can do it on my own and it's my right. What? I'm not kidding you. When sin has a grip on me, when it sits on my throne, goodness to me is when I can have what I want when I want it. I can have pleasure when I want it. I can have power when I want it. I can possessions when I want it. I can have control over all things when I want it. I am selfish the greatest sign of sin. In fact, it's independence from God. It's not wanting God. That's why Satan in the garden said to Eve, are you sure God said, go ahead and eat it. You don't need to listen to him. Do it on your own. Eat it." But this also says in verse 15, there's another person uh, for him who died for me. So the actual king. The king's The king's rule in our life makes us loyal to him. We are loyal to his will. We want to do what he wants us to do. So when God has a grip on me, when I'm ruled by the son and not ruled by sin, goodness, goodness is when I see situations and circumstances conforming me into his image. When I allow those situations and circumstances to conform me into his image, then I know he's ruling me. Let me give you an illustration that is going to drive you crazy. Are you ready? Jared, are you ready? This is going to drive you crazy, and I'm so excited about it. Turn to the book of Matthew. Chapter... 5, and verse 41. This is the greatest sermon ever given. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, I was asking my preaching teacher, he's an African-American teacher. I said, what, what would have been the greatest sermon you ever heard? Would it be like Martin Luther King in Washington, D.C., when he said I had a dream, or Chucks when some of Chuck's when dolls, you know, or Jonathan Edwards, and he leaned back, he said, Mmm. Imagine you're on the sea of Galilee and the wind is coming off the green hills and a man stands up in sun bronze skin, confident, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. And then if you keep going in there, he gets to verse 50, 41 and he's giving some instructions of a man who is under the rule of the sun. And here's what he says. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. It's called the extra mile passage. You go the extra mile. Do you know what that even means? Let me show you something. There's three words that are quite shocking. The first word is Anyone. In the context, from verse 38 to 42, the context says the word anyone is talking about those who are, in a sense, your enemies, those who are evil, verse 39, those who have ill intent concerning you, verse 39, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. If anyone would take your tunic, let him have your, and then if anyone forces you to go to mile, so the first word anyone is somebody who actually is using you maybe abusing you, humiliating you. Second word I want you to look at is the word forces. If anyone forces you to go one mile, so this is not something you want to do, they compel you to do it. Actually, at that time, it was legal for Roman authorities to ask a peasant to use their donkey, their ox, or even the man's back to carry goods for them a mile. Listen to what writer, one writer said. This is, the practice of going a mile is a practice of compulsory and often unpaid or poorly paid public service. And you know this is good because look how big this book is. My arm's getting tired. This writer says, Since Persian times, impressing people and animals without notice for temporary service to the authorities had been customary and legal. And this practice has been well documented. It is understandable that the populace experienced this requirement as irksome. That means they didn't like it. That they often resent it. They resented it. Do you ever resent anything like the authorities want you to do? I resent that. And that it was... All too subject to abuse. Hostility to Roman rule would make such impressment yet more distasteful. Do you know who was impressed into Roman rule? There's a guy by the name of Simon of Cyrene. He was impressed to carry the cross of Christ. He's watching Jesus walking up Golgotha, and the Roman soldier said, carry his cross, go the mile. The recommendation is, To generous and ungrudging compliance, presumably such compliance as the power to turn an exaction into a genuine public service, generously giving to a representative of the government who has need of it. So the one mile's okay. But then Jesus says, go with him two miles. And then he says, offering to go with him two miles. So you're doing something that is not in your nature. It's going past resentment and saying, you know something, I'll go with you an extra mile. You want me to help you? And the writer says the purpose of this is Jesus wanted his disciple to turn the nature of the transaction from one in which both parties felt worse about each other after the encounter to one in which positive human action interaction might become possible. What he's saying is Jesus has a way of turning resentment and anger, and How dare you to? You know what? I'll go the extra mile. And when you go to the extra mile for somebody, they'll say, wow, that guy. I've never met a guy like that. I've never met a guy who will self-sacrifice even when it's a distasteful thing he's got to do. I wonder, have we been asked to do anything like that? And I could go for a mask right now. Let's continue on. When a person resists the demands of sin's rules and promptings, when sin's rules and promptings say, that's not fair. I would never do that. When we resist that and we follow Christ's rule, which says, hey, let me go another mile. All right, all right, all right. Let me go another mile. Sometimes, Jared, truthfully at this job, I don't like going the extra mile. Truthfully, I don't. You know, like sometimes, I you know sometimes I can remember. Sometimes I just want to go with my kids, like to the lake or something, and I get a call that I got to go to the hospital. You know, somebody's dying. So when you uh, submit to Christ's rule, which says, "Hey, let me go another mile," what it does it turns the world upside down. Because remember, sin's goal is I get what I want. What's the throne's goal? Conformity into the image of Christ, where somebody might text you on the phone and say, I, I saw Jesus in you today. When you let Jesus rule, it makes you like him. So we go back to the do you treat Jesus as your king? Third question. Oh, wait a second. I don't want to go to the third question, Andrew. I'm reading this book. <laughs> it's a non-Christian book. I won't tell you the book. I'm reading this book from a non-Christian who gets it. Like this guy has no reason to get it, but he gets it. And I want you. And he's got this title in the book that says none of us are special. And he says this, when you assume that you are the exception, that you are different, and you say I'm different and I'm special, he says you know what you call that? narcissism pure and simple narcissism you feel your problems deserve to be treated differently than everyone else's that your problems have some unique math to them that doesn't obey the laws that other people must obey my recommendation he says don't be special don't be unique redefine your expectations in mundane and broad ways Choose to measure yourself not as some horrible victim or some dismal failure. Instead, measure yourself by more mundane identities, not as a rising star or undiscovered genius. Measure yourself as a student, a partner, a friend. And I would go one more step. Measure yourself as a servant of the Lord God Almighty. And if you think you have it bad, praise the Lord you didn't live during the Civil War. Let's go to point three. Point three. Who judges me? We find it in verse 10 through 12, back in Romans 14, verse 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? So who judges us? Again, let me read it again. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? you... Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And that's not just... Like normally we we use that verse 11 to the non-Christian. He's talking to Christians where we're going to bow. So then... Each of us will give an account of himself to, to God. It's funny when I have four sisters, and my mom a lot of times would send us outside and play all day long, and she'd all, always have a self-police. I told Jared how we always had a self-police. My mom wouldn't interrupt. And I can, I can remember, you know, like my one sister always wanted to think of the game we play, and she'd always set the rules. And my other sister would get mad, and a lot of times when she got mad, she'd say, who died and made you king? I mean, I, just, I can. who died and made you the judge? You know, that kind of thing. My question, who died and made you king? Who made you the judge? Because the truth is, there is a judge. And he is listening to every word you say. So, be very careful what you say if you are trying to take his role. be Very careful. About eight years ago, there's a book that came out called Love Wins written by Rob Bell. This was a very controversial book. It presented the idea that all people will make it into heaven. That's kind of the idea about love wins. Since love wins, everybody wins. Everybody gets in. Of course, unless they don't want to go. You know, I mean, God won't force you to go if you don't want to, but everybody gets in. Love wins. It's really nice, you know. A biblical scholar, after reading this book, said something very interesting. He imagined a day when this author had to go before the throne and meet God. And he imagined God asking him, "Uh, who gave you the right to change my words? Um, By whose authority were you writing that book and twisting some of the things that I have delineated very clearly and you kind of move them out of the way with conjecture, nuance, and wonder? Who gave you the right to change my words? Wow. Paul is using this same tone. By whose authority are you judging your brother? Who gave you the right to condemn To condemn anybody? Like condemn? Where you're standing above them saying, you're just wrong. Who gave you that right? I want to read for me from the NLT. This is the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 1. As you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. After all, God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. This is scary. Why is it imperative to keep your mouth shut when it comes to judgment? I have three reasons, and I I don't think you'll be able to see them on this picture, which is fine. Three reasons are the dread of the judge, The awe-inspiring courtroom we are going to be entering, and the augustness of the audience. So the judge. Do you know what the judge is going to look like? Who's going to judge you? Because according to Romans, each of us are going to have to give account to him. Here's what he's going to look like. Revelations chapter 1, 10 to 17. Uh, It was the Lord's Day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. Super loud. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the son of man he was wearing a long robe with a gold sash around his chest and he'd wear it up here long robe his head and his hair were white like wool as white as snow his eyes were like flames of fire His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered, thundered like a mighty ocean. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. His face was like the sun in all his brilliance. Have you ever looked in the sun, like tried to? So he turned. Somebody, like he's hearing waterfall voice. He turned, and his face, like the sun, is looking at him, and it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. That's who we're going to give an account to. And I have a feeling sometimes he said, Chris, why didn't you let me do my job? Why did you speak words that I never told you to speak? I don't want to hear that. Why do we take vengeance when he says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord? Do you know his vengeance is perfect? That's why he doesn't want us to take it. His vengeance is severe. There's also an awe-inspiring courtroom. You can read it in Psalm 50. It says, he stands on his throne and around it is a tempest of fire. So it's serious business. Have you ever walked into a room where it's serious business and you don't deserve to be there? One time I was working at, I call it 55 West Wacker. I was working in Chicago. And I was just selling this stupid little product, and I had this cheesy little tie on, and I hit this button, went up the elevator, and walked in this room, had no names on it, and I opened up this office, and there were 20 lawyers from Fortune 500 companies looking at me. And they said, ah, uh, what are you doing here? Would anybody like to buy a stamp machine? And They called the guards, and the guards escorted me out, and they said, you can never come into this building again. I was like Elf when he went into the Empire State Building. Never allowed in again. It was as if sometimes I don't realize just how serious God's business is. We don't treat God serious as he is. And the third thing is the augustness of the audience. Psalm 54 through 5 says it's the host of heaven. Luke 12, 8, say angels will hear all of the things I've done, declared. They'll be shouted. And it also says in Hebrews, we're going to be surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. I have a feeling my dad might see me there. I don't want to embarrass my dad. So I'd like to ask you, here's what I'd like to ask you. By the way you've been acting of late, are you ready for your court date? Are you ready for your court date? Let me give you an illustration of what I think's been going on. See, because what's happening, even in our church, I mean, a lot of things have been happening in our church. Of late, we are having a big discussion over a piece of square cloth. That goes over the mouth. You know, I mean, and we're condemning people who wears it or don't wear it. And it's crazy. And so, what God will do there's a lot of times in life, here's what God does. Here's two people, two people, they look the same. They look the same. How do we know? You know, they both are looking good. You know, how do we know what's in them? Here's how we know what's in them. Bible says God sometimes pours out wrath or punishment or suffering or affliction like a bowl. And so how do we know what's in them? He pours, according to Psalm 42, difficulties, stress and then what we do is we squeeze and what comes out of this is what's in us on one side some people if you really get them in tough times green yak comes out of them like really what's in them it showed up through the difficulty or do they have have they been washed with the blood of Christ They looked the same at the beginning, but what was the difference? What was the difference? I'll say it like this. To conform you into his image, he will often crush you. Because in the crushing is the revealing. What's in you?